Right, turn to page eight of your notes, please. And I want to begin in on the heading which you find there, which is the, the qualities of David's tabernacle. Because it's all written, as we've said several times already, for our instruction, it's, it's a type, it's a, a shadow, it's a warning, it's an admonition that we should learn from. And it's particularly applicable to those on whom the end of the ages has come. So this is the time when God's going to do this across the earth and we better learn the lessons. And I've just written there some things which we need to learn about David's tabernacle. It, it, first of all, it violated every point of Moses' law. As if God, and I pondered this and I prayed over this for many, many days. I said, Lord, why, why was that? And really what I felt the Lord say to me was that that tabernacle had been so contaminated by the priests, you think of Hophni and Phinehas and their immorality and their greed. And then even Samuel's sons, which you read about in 1 Samuel 8, they did not follow in the ways of their father and they corrupted the whole thing and God said, look, I've had enough of that place. Even though I designed it, even though I gave careful instructions about every silver hook and every curtain, there wasn't a thing in that tabernacle that wasn't according to the pattern which I showed them in the mount and showed Moses. Now, the pattern which we have very clearly revealed is a pattern that is spoken about in the book of Hebrews, that the earthly tabernacle was the shadow of a heavenly reality. And uh, I'm not getting into that because it's a separate subject, but um, I've already, as I've been pondering this, I already know where I'm going on the next school of the word. And it, there's a little flyer that mentions that. And I'm going to spend the whole, because as I started to get into it, it was so vast, I think we need another whole week on this. And I'm going to spend a week on the Melchizedek priesthood, that's what it is. And I'm going to do a, a, a chapter by chapter, verse by verse exposition of the whole book of Hebrews. Because I feel that's so significant. And notice, remember, the book of Hebrews was written by a, a Jew, a Christian Jew, writing to Christian Jews. And I think that's very, very important to understand what he felt was important to say to his own people that they might come into the full revelation of what was God was doing at this time. But it's also very important for us Gentiles because it gives us a, a clear understanding of what this whole Moses tabernacle was about. It was a, a temporary shadow of a reality which already existed in the heavens. But the trouble was, on earth, the very priests who were appointed to guard the purity of that tabernacle, they became the corrupting influence. That's the tragedy. And if you look at our major denominations in the United States, I'm sure you would agree with me that we've got this same tragic situation. I was meeting with a group of Methodist ministers from the uh, uh, area of, uh, around Texas, around Abilene, that whole area, and they were crying with me that in their recent uh, national synod, by, by one vote, they voted not to regularize homosexual relationships and homosexual marriages. Only by one vote it did not get carried. And these 70 men of God said that if it had gone the other way, we were going to come out. Now we don't know what to do. But it was only by one vote. 
And they said, next time, those lobbies are going to be working even harder to swing the thing the other way. The Presbyterian Church have already authorised such things. Now, this is, this is so obscene in the sight of God. This is right inside, if you, if you like, his tabernacle. You think of where Martin Luther began and where it is now, where John Wesley began and where it is now. You realise that God comes to a point where he says, look, I'm not taking my new thing back into that stinking old wineskin because it's so corrupted, I've got to start again with something fresh. Can you hear me? Now, when I say that, I, I do not think God is too concerned about the label on the door. And if there is a church that happens to be Baptist, happens to be Presbyterian, happens to be Methodist, which will, if you like, not bring the foulness of that contaminated denomination, but will return again to the purity of God, God doesn't care about the label, he cares about what's going on inside. So it is possible, I hope you understand what I'm saying, it is possible to bring the tabernacle of David into a, an Anglican church, into a Methodist church, into a Baptist church. But we've got to go against the stream of where the denomination is going in order to do it. And this also applies, by the way, to traditional Pentecostal churches. And I think our African-American brothers, they need to have a good look at some of their traditions which are right square in the way of God. Now, I say that lovingly, uh, and you know how I love and love to be in those places, but there are certain stiff legal religious systems there which are as killing and as suffocating as anything else we have in our other places. And all this has to go. Your culture, your denominational background, your whatever it is, it cannot stand in the way of what the new thing that God's going to do, because he's going to do it. And one of the, I mean, the Wiesław is here from, from Poland, and one of the tragedies is this, that during the bad old days of communism, I used to sneak into those East European countries, and I'd meet with these Pentecostal pastors in secret. We'd pass them the Bibles, and you could feel this oppressive darkness of communism. It seemed an absolutely immovable force. And these men suffered, they went to jail, they stood for the truth. But the, the tragedy is that that very suffering has so hardened them in 50-year-old Pentecostalism that they're now resisting the new move of God. And I've spoken to some of these men, I said, now I've, I've known you for, some of them for 30, 40 years. I said, you went through all that suffering and you stood for the truth and you, you went through all kinds of... Um, some you know, went to jail for years and some suffered extremely. But now, nothing that they held in 50-year-old Pentecostalism, none of it is now negotiable because we paid such a price to keep it. And I said, do you, do you really want to spend the first 40 years of your ministry suffering for Jesus and then spend the last 10 years of your ministry fighting against God? That's what I said to them. Because I'm their age. And I've been through with them what they've been through, but they, they would not hear me. And I'm, I'm crying as I tell you this. And I said, God, please, don't let me get so fixed in my ways that I can't move with you in whatever you want to do. And so, as we saw yesterday, God said, I am not bringing this 
new this I'm not taking the glory of my presence I'm not taking that ark the symbol of the God of all the earth and of all that Shekinah glory I'm not taking it back into that dirty thing so David you better build me a new tabernacle you better plant it someplace else and the second thing which God it seemed you see I mean I, I can feel and you will see later on as we look at some more scriptures the absolute excitement of God to get back into unveiled face-to-face -face relationship with his people and although the different compartments of the tab tabernacle were temporarily necessary and speak very powerful allegorical truths God heart has God's heart has always been I can't wait till Jesus finishes the job and, and I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit to give you, I want you to get hold of God's heart here. It says in Matthew, the moment Jesus cried, it's finished, what was the first thing that happened? The veil of the temple was rent from, and God says, come in! <laughs> and love me, and have face-to-face fellowship with me. And you see, and God is, was longing in that, in, for that moment. And I'm going to try and attempt something here, which is crazy, but I want us just to try and allow God to begin to teach us the difference between time and eternity. You will never come to the balance of biblical truth without comprehending that. Because for many, many Christians, eternity is just a long time. It isn't. Like we sing that old song, when we've been there 10,000 years. Now, eternity isn't a long time. It's timeless. It is a physical fact, and you probably know this, that if we were to accelerate to the speed of light, time would stand still. That's a physically provable fact. And they've been able to accelerate particles almost to the speed of light. And we're going to get to a stage soon, I believe, if, if man's allowed to get cleverer and clever, where we're going to be shooting space capsules into space, at doing speeds of maybe 100,000 miles a minute, approaching the speed of light, and getting even to maybe 186,000 miles a second, which is the speed of light. And it'll be like this. They will leave on their space venture, and because they're approaching the speed of light, time will be almost standing still. So they'll go on a three-month journey and all they'll need to take with them is a packed lunch. Because in the space capsule, it'll be like a few hours. So they'll just have time to have a packed lunch and do these various experiments they want to do. And when they come back, they'll find everybody's 40 years older. And they haven't changed because they were on the verge of coming into timelessness. Now, you, you want to let God stretch your minds and, and, and just begin to think in these terms. Because eternity is where God's natural habitat is. Time is a temporary thing that he's created along with space and length and breadth and height. It's just a fourth dimension. And Einstein, as you know, was able to demonstrate. When I went to and did chemistry, we were told that matter could not be created or destroyed. And in every chemical reaction, there was just as much matter at the end of a reaction as there was before. It was called the law of conservation of matter. And there was a law called the law of conservation of energy. But matter and energy were totally separate from one another. Now, that's all now known to be baloney. 
And it was the discovery that matter could become energy or vice versa, which led to the power of the atomic bomb. You probably know all these things. And, and the, the ultimate source of energy is now physically provable to be light. And so we're discovering what God told us in the Bible many, 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 many years ago. And we've got to get out of these sort of rigid moulds in which we find ourselves. We've got to allow God to begin to stretch us, to, to show us as much as it's possible what eternity, eternity is just living in an eternal now. And that's God's habitat. And events which take place, and, and I want you to think of time, like I've got to stay in this parameter, or otherwise terrible things happen. Let me move this... <laughs> I'll move this out of the way because I don't think that looks so good there. Oh! I'm bad. But if you can imagine a long line on the floor, and I'm very tempted, and somewhere where Billy and Angie are, imagine that's the beginning of time, okay? And then where... Help me. Stephon, I'm sorry, Stephon, you just went out. But where Stephon is here, imagine that's the end of time. And we're somewhere on this timeline. There's Abraham down there, and there is Jesus being crucified here, and there's you and I further along the line. Have you got the picture here? But once you step out of time into eternity, then it becomes a circle with no end or beginning. Have you got that picture? So when Jesus was crucified in time, that, e that event of being crucified in history became at the same time an eternal event and went boom, from one end of time to the other. So that Abraham, who was at that end of the timeline, could step into eternity and be saved by the power of the cross 2,000 years before it took place in time because eternally it already is an eternal now. Now, does that begin to make sense to you? And that's why you and I, 2,000 years after the point of time, can step into eternity and the cross is present and the blood that Jesus shed is a freshly slain, perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, I may, God forbid, but I may still commit some sins in time, but because eternity dealt with those sins, they're already paid for. Have you got that picture? Now what God decided to do was he decided to step out of eternity into time and give us a prophetic picture through David of what it was going to be like in the eternal realm. And what we see temporarily in David's tabernacle was the cry of God's heart, I can't wait for the day when the, the, the events of time allow me to ratify this permanently in time. So for a moment, I'm going to take you into eternity and show you in David's tabernacle the kind of relationship which I want with you. David's going to be my model because he's got such a heart, it's my heart. And when my great David, Jesus, comes, he's going to bring the reality of what David is temporarily and prophetically representing. And so we're not going to be under law. We're not going to be of any particular ethnicity. 
we're just going to be totally, gloriously redeemed sons and daughters. Well, let's use the word son, because in the Greek language, the word son does not have a gender, by the way. You know that, don't you? The word huios, which is a grown-up, mature son that inherits his or her father's treasure, is a word with neither gender. It, has, it requires a male or female prefix. And in the New Testament, God doesn't talk about daughters. He talks about male or female sons. Because all of us are there to inherit all the riches of his amazing grace. He's raised us in Christ above the angels. The angels are ministering spirits, and they're ministering to the heirs of salvation. And when you comprehend these things, you just are filled with utter awe. You say, my God, like the great, great hymn writer Charles Wesley said, my God, what have you done? It is not a $10 salvation. In the, in the, the mathematics of um, Matthew 18, where Jesus is teaching us how to forgive our brothers, you remember that story? And he talks about this rich owner who forgives his servant his, his, what he owes. And if you do the calculation, that servant owes him about $4 billion in present-day terms. Now, that's how God measures the forgiveness he's given to us. It's not a $10 forgiveness. He's taken you and I from the prisoner of Satan, the prisoner of sin, and he's made us to be his very own son in love with the same status and the same acceptance and the same relationship as his only begotten son, Jesus. Now, how, it says in Hebrews, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Now, my calling is absolutely incredible. I can, I can hardly take it in. The more I read the Bible, I'm like, no, that can't be right, but it is right. It is right. It's what it says. And so David's tabernacle was a 33-year window when God said, look, this is what I'm looking for. And the moment Jesus has finished his perfect work on the cross, then we can bring it in, in fullness and reality. And there's never any need now to go back to the alternative method, which was the, you know, the holy place, the holiest of all, the outer court, all this kind of stuff, which was necessary until that sin of ours could be thoroughly and completely dealt with. But for 33 and a half years, I'm going to give you a taste of what I want. And I believe anybody with the faith can step out of time, because see what faith is, I've, I've pondered faith, I've taught faith for years, and I finally come to a, a condensed definition of faith. Faith is a faculty which God gives us, which enables us to step from time into eternity, grab hold of the riches of eternity, and bring them back into manifestation in this time-space world. Now you think about that. Shall I repeat that if I can? Let me repeat it. Faith is a faculty given to us by God. It's totally outside of human experience or ability to have faith. Faith has to come to us as a gift from God. But God gives us this gift of faith so that he provides us with this faculty which allows us to step from time 
into eternity and in the eternal realm we grab hold of the eternal word of the living God which hangs there throbbing with all the power of his timeless eternal life and we grab hold of that truth in the realm of the eternal or if you like the realm of the spirit and from there we bring it back into this time-space world and then there's manifestation. That's what faith is. It makes things come out of eternity into time. And everything God's ever said or God's ever done, although it will have a point in history where it happened, it at the same time becomes an eternal event. And when you can comprehend that, you begin to realise that things which happened in the past still throb with the eternal power of the eternal now, which they also have as an ingredient, because God, the eternal God, spoke them out of his eternal being, and he, he spoke them into existence, into manifestation. So let's just look at, look at some, of these, some of these things here. I've got them written down on page 8. It violated every point of Moses' law and the religious practices of the Jews in the tabernacle of Moses. It was a simple tent with the Ark of the Covenant in its midst. There was no outer court. There was no holy place with curtain screens protecting them. When you pulled back the curtain of the tent and stepped in, you were immediately in the glory and the presence of God. You just opened the flap bang, you were there in his presence. You see, what I've just put it here, David, if you read Psalm 22, David had seen Jesus crucified at Calvary. He believed and was declared righteous by faith. He now lived in God's presence as a new covenant believer. You read Psalm 22, and you could not have written that psalm without having had a vision of Calvary. It's an amazing psalm, and I'm not going to go into it this morning, I'd, I'd love to. In fact, when I was doing this preparation and I went into the book of Psalms, I wanted to spend a whole day on each one of them. <laughs> they are so incredible. But almost all the psalms were written in that 33-year period while the tabernacle of David stood. And so most of the psalms were written by David himself. Some were written by Asaph, who was the, the leader of the tabernacle of David, or by the chief musician, a man called Chenaniah. These were the guys that wrote the psalms. And they were writing in the tabernacle of David what they were seeing and what they were experiencing in the tabernacle of David. And for that very reason, Almost all the Psalms are new covenant in their theology. They're not old covenant in their theology. People say to me, well, where, does, where in the New Testament does it talk about raising hands and clapping? Oh, I say, in the Psalms. Oh, that's not new covenant. I said, you read it again, my brother. It is. <laughs> See, you've got to stop dividing your Bible into an Old Testament, Malachi to Genesis, and a New Testament, Matthew to Revelation. A lot of the Old Testament, so-called, is actually New Covenant. Because those men had stepped out of their time constraints into eternity and seen the revelation of the New Covenant and were living in it by faith before it had happened in time. But it already was in eternity. 
Amen? So here's David living as a new covenant believer in a way that was totally impossible for Moses himself or the high priest or for the Levitical priesthood. If they did what David did, they would have dropped dead. David was of the tribe of Judah. After the order of, of the law, he wasn't a priest, had no right to put on a linen ephod, which he did. He danced before the Lord as a priest and as a king to his God. Now that's okay in the new covenant, but not in the old covenant. So God says, look, look, I'm going to give you a little taste of where I'm going. I can't wait for Jesus to finish the work. And then now I'm going to... I'm going to rent that tent. I said, come on in and just love me face to face and I'll love you face to face. And then we'll get back to what I've always longed for, intimacy with man. Beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. There's no veil there. In Christ, we're told, the veil is taken away. Amen? Amen. That's what it says. Well, you, you, you get hold of Psalm 22 sometime and read it. We're going to refer to it several times during these days because it's an incredible psalm. But it begins with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is the cry Jesus cried on the cross. And there are many traditions which teach us that he actually quoted the whole psalm because that was a fulfillment in time of what David had already seen a thousand years before. My bones are all out of joint. They are casting lots for my garments. My tongue cleaves to my mouth. It's an absolute description of Jesus being crucified. They parted their garments among me. Why have you forsaken me? And then you come to this incredible statement, I think it's about verse 19, when he says, no, although all I can see is, is mocking men, jeering demons, and the darkness of hell is enclosing me, but doubt deep down in my spirit, I know you've not forsaken me. And he starts this incredible faith battle, which I'm going to look at later on this, this week, God, God enabling me. Because I want you to see that he didn't sit there whimpering with pain. He was fighting the most incredible fight of faith. And when I saw that, about 10 years ago, when I was going through a tough time, I said, God, by your grace, I'm never going to be a wimp again. Even in the blackness of the hell of Calvary, Jesus was fighting the good fight of faith. He was stripping the devil of all his resources, taking away from all that he illegally stole from Adam and bringing it back into this new man, Christ Jesus, that it was now available for his glorious new kingdom. I hope that makes sense to you. I'm rattling on a bit. But can you feel the passion of these things? In this new tabernacle, David and his glory boys lived by faith permanently within the veil, in the glory of God's unveiled presence according to the new covenant. This took place a thousand years before it was ratified in time by Jesus. The cross is an eternal event. Jesus was foreordained as the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. The top cross took place at a particular point in time and yet was timeless and eternal in its effect and saving power. At any point in time, godly men and women could reach by faith into the eternal realm and experience the saving power of Calvary. And that's what David did. Abraham this, lived this way 2,000 years before the event of Calvary. 
But David went even further in his tabernacle than Abraham did, which stood about a thousand years before Calvary. Through the power of this tabernacle, David set up a kingdom which was going to teach us much about the coming kingdom of God because it was the forerunner, allegory, and type of the kingdom of his dear son. I counted my, my Bible and I found there were 57 chapters of, of the Bible devoted to the kingdom and to the reign of David. That's an enormous amount of scripture. And the reason is because it's allegorically teaching us and showing us many, many glorious facets of the kingdom of the greater David, as he's called. And, and you'll find again and again, once David had finished his reign, every other king was measured by how much he did it like David. He was a good king if he did it like David, but if he didn't do it fully like that, he came short of God's standard. And if you read in the New Testament again and again, we see Jesus being preached as the fulfillment of David. David's greater son has now come to bring the reality of what David in his reign shadowed and typed for us to give us much understanding. That's why we need to study these things and we need to learn the principles. How did, D, how did David set up his kingdom? Well, first of all, it began with someone that God anointed. And he was anointed three times, by the way. He was anointed once in, in uh, 1 Samuel, I think about 1 Samuel 16, I think it is, if I remember. He was anointed by Samuel as king while Saul was still on the throne. After Saul died, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, David was anointed by his own tribe, Judah, and also by Benjamin. But that wasn't by the whole nation of Israel. They didn't recognize who he was. He couldn't start to build the kingdom. He couldn't start to raise up his tabernacle. He couldn't take possession of Mount Zion. And he couldn't bring the glory of the kingdom in until they'd all recognized who he was. So you find in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that the other ten tribes come and anoint him. Now he can move. He moves from Hebron to Jerusalem because it's got to be in Jerusalem that he builds the tabernacle. It's got to be in Jerusalem that the kingdom goes out from. And this has got tremendously powerful teaching for us in our present day. And if you're going to raise up a David's tabernacle in your city, you're going to have to go the same way. You're going to have to ask God, you see, a committee of pastors will never do it, beloved. If they come together in equality and all wait for someone to nervously try and lead, but nobody really wants to, and nobody wants, will let anybody because we won't recognize that there, there is order in God's kingdom. Now, these days, such leaders would be called apostles. That's the biblical term for them in the New Testament. But there, there, if you like, in Jerusalem, after, as, as it was raised up in the, after Jesus, the, the David of Jerusalem in that day of the early church was James. He was given leadership. Peter and all the others deferred to him. Although he was an apostle, he was the brother of Jesus, he was an apostle after them, he was given this lead role in the city of Jerusalem. So if we want to see the tabernacle of David raised up in San Antonio, we've got to say, Lord, who is your David? And he'll be someone that God's anointed. And he won't be pushing himself or manipulating. He'll just be saying, well, Lord, I can't do anything until you make people see what you've anointed me to do. 
It will be the same in Abilene, it will be the same in Lubbock, wherever, wherever you come from, anywhere across the United States, anywhere in the world. God's raising up certain men in Kenya and Zambia and all over those wonderful African nations. In Poland right now, God is going to raise up in several of the major cities great and glorious tabernacles of David and we've got to recognize who the Davids are because it is David's tabernacle. Amen? It's not the tabernacle of the pastoral committee. It's David's tabernacle. And God starts with a man. And if you watch the process for getting a man ready, you're not sure you want the job. And think of, think of Joseph Think of Daniel, and I tell you, he will so process them, before he will release them, they might try and get there before in their own strength, but I mean, when they're really released by God, they, they've got no ambition but to do the will of God. Their passion is for the kingdom, not for themselves. Their heart is for the city, it's not for their own ministry. If your own church means more to you than the city, you've not yet been processed to where God wants you to bring you. If your ministry means more to you than the kingdom of God, then God's still got to deal with you. But those men are being marked out and they need to be recognized. And when they're anointed, then they can start to move. Around that man... Then God puts a team of mighty men. And if you go to 1 Samuel, I mean, if you go to 1 Chronicles 12 or go to 2 Samuel 23, you get a lot of details about these mighty men. They're all listed. There were 37 of them all, including David. I'll just say this quickly because I think we need to understand this. That round that David were three men whose job was to make sure that no attack got through to them. Why are there so many casualties as people start to advance the kingdom? Because we don't understand the need for shields in the spirit to put a protection. There are certain people that humble me because they tell me that they're called by God to pray for me every day, day and night. And I tell you, the only reason I'm alive and sane is because of the prayer shield that's put around my life. They, people will lay their lives down to see that the devil cannot get at me. And it's not my strength, it's the, it's the protection of God's shield that he's put around me. So there's three, and, and in the Old Testament they were men, but in the New Testament they are mighty men in spirit, but they can be male or female. Amen? We'll see later on that all that stuff's gone in the New Covenant. And I'll tell you the story of how God changed me from insisting on having a head-covered, silent wife to the fireball that I've got today. <laughs> I've come on a long journey. And you, if you're somewhere on that road, I know what it feels like, but I know where God's got me. And I'm going to deal with that in one of the other sessions. But then there's, the th then there's the three that lead the 30, then there's the 30. And these are the, the mighty men, and we read in 1 Chronicles 12, their ambition was only to see David king and to, for the kingdom to come. That's their ambition. They're given to each other. There never was a defection. No one ever went off and started his own church. 
Many of them joined with their own army of 5,000, 10,000, but they, they decided to lay down their individual success in order to see the success of the kingdom. And when they came together, they became the great army of God. So do you want your own private army, or do you want to be a general or a lieutenant, or maybe even a sergeant in the army of God? It says also they all knew how to keep rank. It's all there in 1 Chronicles 12. You read it there. It's tremendous teaching for us. These were written for our instruction on whom the end of the age is coming. And God does not believe in committees. There's only two committees in the Bible. One of them built the Tower of Babel. You know what God thought about that? <laughs> the other committee met... It was, a, it was a committee of experts. It was the owner of the ship, it was the captain, it was the experts who came together to decide whether it was safe to go to sea or not. They'd already heard apostolic wisdom. Don't go because there's going to be shipwreck. But their expert opinion overrode the apostolic wisdom and they went to sea against the apostolic advice and there was shipwreck. So we haven't got a very good record for committees in the Bible. So it had its leader, it had its mighty man, and then it had its covenant community. That roughly equates to the upper room community in the New Testament. And I guess the mighty men would be the apostolic prophetic band that gathered round the man that God had anointed. And that was the order which God chose to build it. Just moving on in, in verse, page 9, just notice this. I've said this, most of the Psalms are written in David's tabernacle. Melchizedek, not Levi, was the priest of David's tabernacle. You read Psalm 110, and you'll see that clearly there. You read the book of Hebrews, it comes again and again in the book of Hebrews. That's so important that I felt I need to do a whole school of word on that, because when the Melchizedek priesthood becomes manifested, then it's going to be so powerful. Notice this. There were no sacrifices for sin ever offered in David's tabernacle. Did you know that? There were peace offerings, there were love offerings, but no sin offerings because the one perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God was recognized and received in David's tabernacle. It was new covenant. Melchizedek doesn't offer lambs and other animals, he gives bread and wine. Amen? That's what he ministers, the elements of the new covenant. Now this is, this is David's tabernacle. For 33 years we have a glorious picture of what the new covenant's all about. And everything that was against that had to go. Concerning David, God said, I found in David a man after my own heart who will do all my will. God had a problem finding people willing to do all his will. They might do 90% of his will. Saul did 95% of God's will, but he disobeyed him 5%. What did God call it? Disobedience and rebellion. He said, you slay all the Amalekites. He said, well, well, we'll almost do that, but we'll keep the king alive and we'll keep... You know, the best of the sheep and the oxen, of course, we'll use them to offer a sacrifice to God. 
And God says, I don't want sacrifice, I want obedience. And 95% obedience is not good enough for my kingdom. It's not good enough for my man. Therefore, the kingdom's taken from you, and I'm going to give it to a man who will do all my work. And so we've got to conclude, and I do want to underline this, that the tabernacle of David was clearly raised up by God through David according to his will. It was expressing God's heart, and we need to learn its lessons. Now just at the bottom of page 9, during his three and a half year ministry, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. I'm not going to develop this now, but I will later. I want you, I want you to see that Jesus was like a one-man tabernacle of David. It says in John 1.14, he did what? He tabernacled amongst us. He was like a one-man powerhouse that had all the qualities of David's tabernacle, and it was the beginning, if you like, of the glory of the new covenant. And he went into the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, and once at the end of his ministry, which you read about in all the Gospels, you know, John chapter uh, 18 or Matthew 21 will be examples of that. And when he went in the first time, the first thing he did was to get rid of all the money changers. And he said, you've made my father's house into a house of merchandise. And the moment he'd finished the job and went out, they went back and put it all back the way that it was. He comes at the end of his ministry and he says, you've made it a den of thieves. And he turns out the money changers, and then for one day, the temple is turned into the tabernacle of David. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, the buildings are only useful to God, providing they have the tabernacle of David in them. Amen? See, if you've got great buildings without that tabernacle, then you're no better than the temp temple or, or the Moses tabernacle without the presence of God. God's not against buildings, but they mustn't be in place of God. In Matthew 12 and verse 6, you can read this, Jesus said, and in the Greek there are three genders, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. We don't have this in English. It's not easy to translate, but what he literally said in Matthew 12, 6, he said, he said this, he said, something, not, in spite of what it says in some of your English Bibles, it says literally, something, not someone, greater than the temple is here. And he was talking about the kingdom, he wasn't talking about himself. He could have been talking about the tabernacle of David. It was something. And for one day, he brought the kingdom, he brought the tabernacle of David, which is an intrinsic part of the kingdom. In fact, it's the only way for the kingdom to be established is the first thing you've got to do is to raise up David's tabernacle. We're never going to see the kingdom in our society until we've got David's tabernacles established in our cities. Hello, can you hear me? Notice the order of God. First of all, get rid of the Jebusites. Second, put the tabernacle of David there, and from that tabernacle, you can now begin to powerfully establish the kingdom. It's something greater than the most fantastic buildings. But if you get good facilities and you fill them with the tabernacle, that couldn't be better. But if you've got to choose between the tabernacle and nice buildings, go for the tabernacle every time. 
But I, I'm seeing already in America, Eileen spent a few days just last week with Mike Bickle, and he was showing her the incredible facilities that God's providing for them. I mean, it's, it's, there's millions and millions of dollars worth of buildings that are being provided because they are determined to raise up a tabernacle of David. I, I think we will find in San Antonio, and wherever you want to do it, that, that all that you need in terms of finances, in terms of facilities, and in terms of men and women, they will be rapidly sent to you once you are determined to see the tabernacle of David raised up. God's not short of money when it's his will. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. It's that simple. Amen? And we're going we're gonna to have this great facility for a living prayer center, which is going to be a permanent, continual tabernacle of David right here in San Antonio, and we're not even going to have a mortgage for it. Why should God need to borrow money? You wait and see. You'll see that. Because God's in this thing. And if we'll hear him and do what he says, he will use us like David to raise up a tabernacle like David. Well, Jesus made four statements in Matthew 21, which we'll be looking at you know, during these few days. I'm just going to mention them to you now, which were, if you like, because you see, Jesus always has the right to expand and develop what has already been taught in the Scriptures. Are you, would you agree with me? Yes. He has the right to say, well, Moses said this, but I say this. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't as it were, counter... Moses, but he, he expands it to the fullness of what God intended. Moses said, don't commit adultery. He said, don't even think about it. Moses said, you know, if, you, if you murder your brother, then you'll be guilty. Jesus said, don't even think about murdering your brother. And he took the teachings of the old covenant and filled them with, if you like, the expanded power and glory of the new covenant. And so that was true of David's tabernacle. He added four things which are not clearly brought out. And here are these four things. Number one, it was to be a place of extravagant praise and worship. It's all in Matthew 21. I'm not going to turn to it because I'm trying to keep somehow to time. The second thing was that he said it was to be a house of prayer for the nations. It's all there in Matthew 21. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. Although we're going to be very concerned about San Antonio, our heart is going to be for the whole world. We're going to pray for every nation on the face of the earth. We're going to cry out to God to fulfill his glorious end-time purpose amongst his own people, the Jews. We want to see that gloriously fulfilled. It's all part of his heart, part of his passion. That everything he's promised, every word he ever said should come to fulfillment through the power that's going to flow out from David's tabernacle. The third thing which was interesting was that the children were absolutely abandoned in incredible praise and worship and the scribes and the Pharisees, it really blew their fuses and they were so mad they said, stop it! And Jesus said, have you not read in the scriptures that out of the mouths of babes and sucking infants, thou hast perfected praise. 
So this is another dimension which God's speaking to us about, is that there's going to be a place for children in this tabernacle. Not to keep quiet and just colour in the background, but to get right into it, moving in all the gifts and, and power of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing, which you find there, is that the lame and the sick came into David's tabernacle for that one day in the temple and they were healed. And I believe it's going to work in two ways. One is going to be the instant healings, which we will see plenty of on Thursday night. I'm already glowing with what I know is going to happen. If you know anybody that's got cancer, get them here. I've, I've received a new anointing for cancer, which I can't explain, but if I get my hands on anybody with cancer, especially if they're a child of God, they're going to be healed. There's just an anointing for that, which I can't, I don't want to explain it, I just enjoy just <laughs> undoing the devil's works. And we've got some great ministries. We've got George Gitanam, Mark Kariuki, we've got... Uh, um, Jack Sheffield, men of great anointing and power, and we're going we're to see incredible things happen on Thursday night. But there's another dimension, that is that it doesn't always happen instantly. And what we are learning from our West African brothers in, in Nigeria and Ghana, they've established a, a dimension of David's tabernacle, I believe, where they have permanent places of prayer, where people come and soak in God's presence, maybe for one or two weeks, one or two weeks, and powerful word of knowledge ministries and prophetic insights are able to put their finger on what the problem is. And the things which are preventing the healing are dealt with, and when they sure the ground is clear, they are then permitted to go into the healing meeting and they get fantastically healed. And I've seen on video some of the most amazing reconstruction miracles I've ever seen in my life. And we're going to have that here in San Antonio. John Lake touched on these things way back at the beginning of this century and, and God's reviving these things in the United States of America. We, I think one day we're going to take over the Courtyard Hotel and that's going to be part of our facilities here so people can stay there and just come every day to soak in God's presence until we see incredible answers to which there's no, no medical answer. Okay? That's what we're going to see. I know it because God said it to me and, and, and I see it's all part of this glorious tabernacle. Oh, I'm getting excited. That's not allowed. <laughs> okay. Right, putting all this together, I, I, on verse 10, I see nine major functions and purposes for David's tabernacle, which we will now, we're going to study them. I'm just going to mention them to you now. First of all, David's tabernacle is a place of extravagant praise and worship, a place of intimacy leading to face-to-face -face unveiled communion with God. Now that's the primary purpose which David had when he raised up the tabernacle. That was probably the limit of his vision. I want the real presence of God, the God I knew on the hills when I was shepherding the sheep. I want that God to be at the centre of the kingdom that he's calling me to establish. I want face-to-face -face intimacy with him. But once he got into that relationship, then God began to show him all sorts of other things which came out of the result of that intimacy. 
And if you don't know how to live in God's intimate presence, then you're going to get a taste of it tonight. But I want to, I want to urge you to press on and press on. It's amazing how already in the city of San Antonio, we've got this 24-hour prayer going. And I don't know how many we've got, I don't know, dozens of people for every hour of the day and night throughout the whole week. And the testimonies which are coming in from the people who signed up for an hour, they did it dutifully, they did it out of a sense of responsibility, they weren't sure how they were going to do it, they'd never done that sort of thing before, but the moment they started doing it, something happened to them. We're getting these incredible testimonies of how their lives have been transformed and how now they have this intimacy with God that they've never known in their whole Christian life before. I never thought I could pray. I never thought I could be that sort of person. Well, everybody's made to be that sort of person. It's not a few intercessory women that have this thing. It's for every <laughs> facet of humanity, beloved. Amen. I don't know why it is that we think it's women's work. It is, and I thank God for all these precious women that have held the fort when no one else could even bother to pray. But revival's near when men begin to pray. Yes. Paul said, I want, and, you know, in the Greek language there are two words. There's anthropos for mankind and there's ania, which is the male word. And in 1 Timothy 2, he says, I want male men. That's what it literally says. I want male men to lift up their hands without anger or doubting. I can get the women to pray, but boy, is it a job to get the men to pray. <laughs> but the men are finding We've got these glorious testimonies coming in now. The men are finding that when I just did this as a decision of my will, within a very short space of time, I'd so met God, he'd so come to me, and was already so becoming so intimate with me, that I thought, man, I never knew you could know God like this on earth. So the first fruit is intimacy. And that's worth it just for that, but that's not the whole story. Let's read on the other ones quickly. We're almost out of time now. David's Tabernacle is a place where children are free to dance, worship, and participate fully with the adults. Okay? David's Tabernacle is a place... We're going to deal with this after the break. David's Tabernacle is a place of burning purity and light where no darkness can remain. It becomes a place of revelation, exposure, reproof, removal, and transformation. We're going to deal with that in the next session, so I won't go into that now. David's Tabernacle is a place of revelation and guidance. It's a place of receiving guidance, vision, and strategy to establish and to advance the kingdom of God. This is especially for leaders who spend time corporate in his presence to get divine plans and strategies. Don't have a committee meeting. Go into God's presence. Then you don't need a vote if you've all heard God say it. See, Acts 6, verse 4 Peter said this, he said, we are not permitted, it wasn't he was too proud, we are not permitted to wait at tables. We must give ourselves first to prayer and to ministry of the word. Now that, that's all said in the corporate, it's a plural. He didn't go on his own, all the guys went together into the presence of God. And there in the face of God, they heard God's strategy and God's plan and they were able to fulfill it. In David's time, he went into the tabernacle with his mighty men. And because they heard God together and got the strategy together, they, they knew 
what God's will was and they had no choice but to do it. There was never a single defection from David's mighty man, even when he killed one of them. It's amazing. And you see, there's a, there's a welding power in being in God's presence together that brings out a team. The, in the upper room, they went into the upper room with Peter and, and, and Andrew in, you know, in the, the Bar Jonah camp and James and John in the Bar Zebedee camp. Family loyalties and family ambition were stronger than their unity as a team. But when they came out of the upper room, you never find Peter and John except together. Peter stood with the eleven. It didn't matter who was preaching, they were all there like a powerful rugby scrum and said, we're with you, Peter, and we're going to make sure that you hit the target with your word. We're not looking for our ministry, we're looking for the kingdom to come. David's tabernacle, number five, is the site of God's throne where Jesus now sits. We better just look at that. Come to Isaiah 16. Just quickly go there. We're just running out of time. Isaiah 16. I'll just read it. I'm going to come back to this in more detail later. Verse 5. In mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Once you get the tabernacle established, you've got the power of rule and government. Okay? David's tabernacle is a place of warfare in the spirit realm, far above all principalities and powers. And from this vantage point, they are attacked and cast down. David's tabernacle is a house of prayer for the nations. David's tabernacle is a place of intense power where the lame and the sick come and are healed. David's tabernacle, number nine, is a place where people come and are charged with an anointing which they carry with them when they return to their homes, offices and colleges. These places then become houses of peace where men and women come and are saved, healed and delivered and they make their peace with God. See, not everybody's going to stay in David's tabernacle. There's a certain sort of core crew that their job is to keep the thing going and keep the present, the place filled with the presence of God. But there are those coming in and out for periods, for days at a time maybe, and they're charged with the power of God to take it back into their society. Now after the break, we're going to look at this particular theme, the theme of intimacy. So we'll have a break now. It's just a, two minutes after ten.